Welcome to The Bailey. This is a show where you can't cut back on funding. You will regret this. I'm your host, Yassin Masood. And today's topic is going to be about the confluence of... How the fuck do I summarize this? <laughs> <laughs> uh, we're going to be talking about cars. We're going to be talking about urban planning. And we're going to be talking about how preferences, policy preferences along those lines, they tend to be split up along partisan lines and generational lines. We're going to introduce uh, today's panel and they're going to provide uh, a brief uh, position statement. Let's start with longtime listener, first time participant, Introversity. Welcome. Thank you, Yusin. Uh, pleasure to be here. So you were the one that recommended this uh, topic. What is your interest in it? Well, I have a bachelor's degree in basically environmental science and a master's degree in city and regional planning. And uh, well, currently I'm employed as I graduated, but I am planning to go into the field of urban and environmental planning and cars, commuting, and uh, all the infrastructure that we've devoted to them seems to be one of, if not the greatest mistake uh, that we've made, or if not mistake that we've made, problem that we need to rectify now. Okay, cool. Bonjour, let's stay civilized. Uh, so the main reason we have you on is to provide the token European viewpoint. Uh, yes. I mean, I'm the only European here. Uh, well, basically, I live in a very... Um, I think Paris has one of the densest uh, public transit system in the world, or the densest subway system in the world. And it's pretty good. It's really great. Anytime I want to be somewhere, go somewhere, I have a lot of choice of ways of getting there. And uh, chances are one of them is on strike, but the other ones work. <laughs> and uh, when I visit like the Bay Area, it's horrible because public transit is super slow and long and you have to take the car to go everywhere. Yeah, when I go in other, any place in the US, I just generally regret here. And I've lived in a few... Um, High density places. I've been, I don't know, Tokyo, Hong Kong, uh, some places in China, or even other places in France and generally everywhere. Places with good public transit are great to be when you don't have a car. And uh, the US, when you don't have a car, really sucks. And Master Thief. Hello. Hello. I am uh, Master Thief. Uh, I made a very good attempt trying to live a public transportation lifestyle, uh, and it didn't work through mo no fault of my own. Uh, now I am uh, in Texas, where uh, everybody has a car, driving is sort of a regular thing, uh, and even if you're five hours away, that's just considered basically, quote-unquote, up the road. I am not the kind of person who is built to live in an ultra-dense city. Uh, the way I see it, the only real externality that cars produce is pollution, traffic. Once we've fixed those with, uh, say, electric, and electric or hydrogen fuel cell cars, uh, self-driving, uh, I think it's, it's all going to come back to a bunch of, again, culture war signaling about how all the cool people live in cities close to each other and they're mass transit dependent. I am in favor of, of good walkable development, but it should be scaled for the way that human beings actually live. Uh, and that includes, yes, some driving. Uh, I am not a fan of uh, the uh, Laker bus here, Kool-Aid, uh, the ultra-dense uh, development and these wide, sprawling plazas and basically um, things designed not for the way that people actually live. I think there's, there's, there's too much bad central planning uh, going on. Cool. And with regards to my own position, I, I hate cars. I'm unashamed about that stance. I also think that they're one of the biggest mistakes that human civilization 
has made in terms of fully embracing it and fully transforming the urban landscape that we have to cater almost incessantly and zealously to or towards accommodating vehicles. I am also of the mind that with advances in technology like self-driving cars, that it's likely going to be a significant mitigating factor in terms of reducing it as a, as a problem. Uh, I'm also mindful that you know, a significant driver behind these policy preferences is that people live very different lives and they've gotten habituated towards their familiar environments. So maybe, um, maybe to set the scene, it's impossible to look at political culture in the United States and not see the urban and rural divide. And with that comes along a host of adopted policy preferences. So if you're in an urban environment, you have access to, presumably you have access to efficient and clean and convenient public transit that you wouldn't have access to if you're in a rural area. And therefore, you're less likely to be heavily dependent on a vehicle. This is not uniformly true across every city in the United States. Some some cities are extremely car dependent. The ones that come to mind are, you know, places like Phoenix, Houston, Detroit, things of that nature. So there's been some some developments on this front. The last decade or so, we saw a significant rise in the allure of cities, especially by younger people. Urban population has been increasing rapidly. The effects of what was considered white flight from the 1960s, the exodus of white families from urban centers to the suburbs, seems to have reversed, at least within the last 10-15 years. And this has been driven primarily by younger professionals. The amount of younger people having a driver's license has decreased significantly in the last few years. This could be explained by a shift in preference towards urban living. It can also be explained by perhaps seeing driving as more and more of a, a non-necessity because there's just so much more to do at home. 2020 has brought about some catalyst for potential change. We saw, obviously, COVID supposedly driving the, the theory that this is going to cause a mass exodus of cities because cities are too dense and therefore too high of a risk as a vector for transmission for pandemics. And then, you know, we have the Black Lives Matter protest slash riot slash unrest, which could also drive more people out of the out of the cities because it's just seen as too chaotic, too risky to live in. Who knows how that's going to play out in the future, uh, but that's where we're at and that's what we're going to be kind of addressing. Master Thief. I think not only those factors, but also uh, the pandemic has also proved uh, the viability of telecommuting. I'm working from home. I know a lot of people are working from home. Uh, Despite all the initial hiccups with uh, uh, inadequate space on these telecommuting services like Zoom, uh, I think it's really proven the viability of uh, a lot more uh, work being able to be done remotely. And therefore, you don't have to live in a big city to get uh, big city work and to get big city work done. Yeah, that's definitely going to be a factor, especially when we consider expensive uh, metropolitan areas like you know San Francisco. San Francisco p- uh, continues to be sustainable in terms of attracting more and more people to live there, despite what I think are like fucking ridiculous housing prices, because it's seen as this blossoming fountain of jobs. But we're seeing kind of like a natural experiment in how viable teleworking is. And as more and more people are more comfortable with it, uh, it is going to decouple the necessity to live in a, an expensive metropolitan area as a, as a predicate factor for having a good job. So that potentially could drive more and more people out of expensive cities. 
maybe they'll live in suburbs, maybe they'll live in in the farm, or maybe they'll move to cheaper cities that have been overlooked by by the hipsters. I actually know some people who live like uh, hundreds of kilometers away from Paris and then telecommute uh, just using the train, the high speed high speed rail, which is another factor. Introversity. Also, want to make sure we we discuss the the various problems that that cars have arisen because not everyone. I mean, you know, everyone knows cars have tailpipes, they emit pollution, they make greenhouse gases and all that. But there's a lot of other problems that are not quite as obvious. Um, most of the problems, you know, having to do with uh, city land use and uh, infrastructure and how much space and time and money is dedicated to cars and parking. Okay, what, well, let's start, let's start with that. So let's start with the um, university why don't you uh, tell us why cars are the worst thing ever? So I'm, I'm kind of in an awkward position of being very much more anti-car than the average person, but being much less anti-car than many of my compatriots in the, in the urban planning field and, and the, the activists in this kind of area. So we have a variety of problems that have stemmed from our over-reliance on cars, not necessarily on our use of them uh, per se, but by the amount that we use them and how, how much we use them and how inappropriately we've designed our cities to overuse them. So first of all, we know there's the direct emissions, there's all the different pollutants that car tailpipes produce, that's particulate matter, that's uh, nitrous oxide, that's sol- uh, uh, sulfur dioxides, carbon dioxide, obviously, carbon monoxide, all these different pollutants that are bad at the local level in terms of air quality and also water quality, uh, and also bad at the, the global and regional levels by creating, again, worse regional air quality and uh, greenhouse gases, which contribute to climate change. On top of that, we also have the issues that come with the way we've designed our cities for cars. So, Every road that we pave, you know, that we that we put down is another impervious surface, which is a surface that rain or precipitation runs off of and creates uh, issues with stormwater pollution and with flooding. Because now that we have all these roads and all this impervious area that can't absorb the rain like it naturally would, we have to take that water and put it somewhere, which means usually a sewer system. So sewer systems cost tens of millions of dollars for even the smallest system, and they cost a ton of money to maintain. And then on top of that, you have all the parking, all the space that you dedicate to the car and how that pushes away or pushes apart the buildings and the the destinations that you actually want to use. So if we had everyone was biking and walking, our cities would be designed with more bike lanes and sidewalks, and they wouldn't need to have six lanes across uh, in between two sets of office buildings for all the cars. That would allow any given city to become much smaller and much more easily walkable and bikeable with the amenities that you would want available within a 10 or 15 minute walk rather than having to be a 10 or 15 minute drive. Yeah. So one thing that I, um, that I think is important to harp on is remembering just how recent cars are as a development. So we've had 
cities for thousands of years. And then cars came into the scene about a hundred years ago. And then depending on how wealthy a given country was, they, they quickly took over what the public space was allotted. There's footage from the late 1890s of a San Francisco street. And you can see how it was a free for all. Uh, you see horse-drawn carriages, you see trolleys, you see people biking, you see people walking, literally walking in the middle of the street, something that would be seen as kind of like anathema to how street space is allocated nowadays. But this wasn't a problem back then because everything had roughly a maximum speed limit of 10, 15 miles an hour. So it was not a problem to have a great deal of mixing uh, among these different types of transportation. So streets were just public plazas. They weren't seen as this kind of river of that is forbidden to anyone with two feet. It was just, you walk on the street, where, where else would you walk? And you can see this, of course, reflected in the, in the architecture of old cities where, to me, they're just kind of like an absolute pleasure to, to explore because they're so human-scaled. Uh, you walk through something, obviously, that is imbued by a sense of history and presence, but it, it's designed entirely with the focus of having a person walking as the intended audience. This is in contrast to walking around in suburbia, which is just completely out of proportion when you're walking. Everything is built to be really big so that it's visible for vehicles or people in vehicles. Everything is built to erode any impingement on driving. So roads are wide, curves are long, like everything is meant to accommodate vehicles. And they're not fun, in my opinion, they're not fun to walk around in uh, and sometimes actively hostile to it. So the development is relatively new and I still find it fascinating at how quickly what was once a public plaza became the exclusive domain of, of vehicles and how even though the cities were not necessarily designed with that in mind, it's been had to, they've had to basically retrofit public spaces to accommodate this exclusivity. Let's stay civilized. Well, I think in, in the U.S., weren't cities actually designed with this in mind? As uh, like a lot of urban development happened like in the U.S. and generally like Australia, Canada, a lot of cities were built or at least were greatly expanded in like the 20th century. Introversity. Depends on the location in the U.S. So cities in the uh, the eastern eastern seaboard for the most part and especially in the northeast are older. You know, you know that's where they first settled. And so, you know, I lived uh, outside of Boston for 17 years or whatever. And, I, you know, this small town, this small suburban town, it had roads that you could not fit two cars past each other at the same time, which is obviously, you know, this is because the roads in that town and in that area were based on cow paths and walking paths and horse trails and things like that. But yes, you're right that when you get out to the West, um, parts of the Midwest, and especially the West, California has a lot of master planned cities um, where everything was laid out, you know, from day one with a, a grid system or with these super wide streets. So some, some cities, yeah, are, do have that kind of master planning, but others do not. Ha, ha, ha. Though, though actually this makes me wonder if it's not really a question of recent it's more a question of when those cities were built there was a lot of space available so they could spread them out because i mean a lot of that stuff was still built in the 19th century before cars whereas something in paris like people have built it trying to like squeeze every single square square meter out of livable space into paris so you end up with uh, every everybody squeezed up against each other 
Well, you can, I mean, a big driver for uh, the high density of uh, European cities and North, some North African cities is they had to be built in mind with the idea that they have to be surrounded by walls, defensive structures. And, you know, obviously the denser a city is, the less you have to spend on building up walls. So by necessity, they had to be really cramped, but still human scaled. You, you don't see that in North American cities just because walls as a viable method of defending a town just was not practical anymore. Uh, so you could spread out a lot more. And even before cars in the 19th century, you, you had the horse wagon as as a primary method of transportation within within cities. And I don't know how true this is, but the idea was that the convention for street width in North America was enough space to allow a three-point U-turn for a horse-drawn carriage. So that that's potentially could explain why streets are so much wider for vehicle, tra- uh, for vehicle travel in North America. And then over time, you just had like these wide streets. And so it was like a natural uh, transformation to use some of them for parking for uh, motor vehicles. Master Thief. Uh, in defense of North America, uh, when you when you come <laughs> here, you you re- you realize if especially if you're if you're coming from Europe or coming back from Europe, uh, that there is this is a big damn country. Uh, you just look at Texas, which is one of the states of the Union, uh, and if you if the same distance between one end of the state of the other uh from El Paso to Orange uh, is the same distance from the coast of Normandy to the suburbs of Vienna so and and that's and that's that's just one state if you're going cross country it can take a say someone who's like driving a long haul truckload literally two or three days to cross the country at a at a maximum safe speed on the road so the attitude was if we have the space why not use it? And a lot of these people were European immigrants. They were coming from places where you had these ultra-dense cities. And in addition to walls, you also had uh, other externalities of the time. Uh, instead of cars, you had horses. And horses, uh, their externality is a whole lot of horse shit. So expanding the streets so that, you know, there was... Uh, place for the for the enough space for the smell to dissipate uh, and for cl- uh, the streets to be cleaned on the regular uh, I I, th- I think a lot of people is like we have the space why not use why not use it uh, and not repeat the path dependent differences of Europe they didn't have a choice we do so let's let's use a space and that uh, as horses transitioned to cars which uh, at the time were were hailed as these marvelous inventions because uh, the pollution was largely gaseous, it dissipated, and it still didn't smell nearly as bad as all the horse manure. So I, I, I kind of want to push back on the thesis that the reason the United States is so enamored with driving is because of, of density and space. Because the, the counterpoint is that there's plenty of European countries that do not exhibit the same uh, feverish uh, preference for, uh, for driving as the United States. For example, Sweden. But... If you look at Swedish uh, population density by, you know, square kilometer, it's around 25 people per square kilometer. And that's much lower than many American states. Like, for example, Texas is around 40 people per square kilometer. New Jersey is, uh, you know, around 450 people per square kilometer, which is the densest state. Densiest? 
den- it's the densest, densest, right? densest, yeah. <laughs> densest yeah the densest the uh, the densest state in uh, in the united states but i don't think that explains all of it it's probably driving it fuck <laughs> <laughs> it's probably responsible for at least some portion of it uh but it doesn't it doesn't explain the entire picture it doesn't explain why relatively low density european countries still don't have this feverish a love affair with the automobile that the United States exhibits on like a near uniform basis. Well, I think the Germans kind of do really like their cars. <laughs> yeah, the Autobahn, the only yeah. the only highway system in the world where there are no speed limits. Right, but I mean that doesn't tell us a big picture. The the relevant metric here would be for example determining what percentage of commuting trips are are done by private automobile. And the United States is way up there on that on that uh, level introversity. On on multiple levels, Master Thief's point is is really important to keep in mind, and is something that I try, especially uh, as someone who's advocating for you know more bike lanes, more sidewalks, less cars, less parking, etc. People do these things. They drive cars. They they purchase large single family homes that are far apart from each other with fences and you know huge yards and wide streets because they like it like we have to keep that in mind that it's not they don't secretly desire the the consequences of suburban sprawl and pollution and all that but once you've been given a taste of this kind of living it's you know as master thief said it's not everyone wants to be in a super dense city now that being said i think there's this huge middle ground between the super dense cities and the current single family detached home sprawl. Like, you know, if you have a bunch of townhomes in your city, you're not Manhattan. Like that's not super dense, but you can fit in a lot more people, a lot more units and a lot, uh, you know, more people can live closer to their jobs. They can live closer to the downtown and it means that you have less commuting and less car use. Master Thief. And and I, I think university is also right in a lot of that, that I don't think that these, these failures necessarily have to do with cars. I think they have to do uh, more with lazy uh, past urban planning that, that locked us into uh, path dependency. Uh, if you look at Houston, which is a very uh, odd outlier in terms of cities, it is the only city in the United States which has no zoning. Uh, it is also the only coastal American city that is not in the middle of a middle-class housing crisis. And yes, it is very sprawly and it is very car dependent. But at the same time, there is a lot of that, a lot of the kind of development that university was talking about, where it, it is the residential areas are townhouses that are closely spaced together. Uh, and instead of zoning, they do private restrictions, uh, private covenants on land use, and they and they enforce them. It's sort of, sort of a, a weird thing that Houston actually voted down a master zoning thing, and the state legislature just said, okay, fine, uh, you can enforce private covenants on land use. This leads to some really interesting decisions uh, about where where things are placed, and there there it is very car dependent. But at the same time, the housing is a lot cheaper than other coastal cities from, you know, San Francisco or Seattle uh, to the East Coast, like Washington, D.C., Boston, New York City, even Miami. 
I also want to push back on the, on the idea that Houston is kind of this uh, free market haven. It's true that it doesn't have official zoning regulations, but it does have a robust uh, nuisance uh, law apparatus that allows neighbors to object to uh, new construction right, right. if they can successfully argue that it's a nuisance, either by blocking out the sun or it's out of character with the neighborhood or it causes too much noise or too much traffic. It's hard to tell whether... Uh, that has like as much of an impact as an actual zoning uh, apparatus, but it's there. And yeah. admittedly, Houston and other kind of sunbelt cities like Atlanta do have kind of this robust uh, housing supply mechanism at play. And obviously, like I think unequivocally, housing prices are much cheaper than comparable cities. But there, therein lies a problem there because when you look at housing prices, it doesn't necessarily take into account transportation costs. That can have as much of an impact, if not more, on total cost of living in terms of where you are. Because the old adage is you drive until you qualify, as in you drive away from the center of the city uh, until you qualify for the housing that's there. So you're trading off, you're gaining lower housing prices by moving further away from the center, presumably, which has all the jobs but you're counterbalancing by having to pay more in transportation costs, including time. So even that analysis is unclear because it doesn't, it doesn't always take into account the countervailing uh, transportation costs. Yeah, it is really kind of a, a chicken or the egg problem, which came first, the increased housing prices uh, or the car dependence. Uh, my, my perspective is that uh, you know whatever caused it, uh, I think it can be solved a lot more effectively by better planning uh, in the urban core that takes into account uh, housing density, uh, like smart housing density, like, like townhomes, not these massive uh, urban renewal apartment blocks, uh, and, and also the, the fact that, that a lot of people will still use cars even when living in cities and that there are ways... Uh, to integrate them. We posted a lot on our internal discord uh, about the differences between American zoning and the way they do zoning in Japan, which is done at a national level. And there are very uh, defined restrictions on, on, you know, uh, on, on, ro on road spacing, floor area ratios, lot sizes. But a lot of people in Japan still have cars. They, they, they still drive. Um, there are there are, there are ways to integrate that development. Another example that, I, that, I've, that I've seen uh, from photographs is Barcelona, which uh, just just made a, a small development in, in, in the way that it was laid out in a grid pattern. Instead of being square blocks, they were sort of uh, octagonal blocks. The, the corners were cut off to provide better visibility for cars turning in. And instead of crosswalks and signals and, and all these other traffic controls, a lot of European countries rely on traffic circles, which they, they involve uh, no signals, just a lot of very close uh, attention by drivers to the road, to pedestrians, situational around awareness of everything around them. And as a result, you, you can have some cities in, in, in Europe that are both walkable and drivable, and they, they, they can share the road. Uh, and th this is a matter, again, of, of design and not necessarily uh, poo-pooing one form of transportation over another. So I, I, I want to get back to that, but I wanted to highlight the there are, I said before that there's few analysis that take into account housing and transportation. The exception to this is the Center for Neighborhood Technology, which has a 
what they call H plus T index, housing plus transportation index, where they take a sample of what they consider working families and then from different cities, and then they determine how much uh, they spend on housing and how much they spend on transportation. And it tends to be fairly um, stable with regards to, like you can compare something as car independent as New York City uh, versus something as car dependent as St. Louis. And what they found is they they spend like roughly 55% equally in both cities when you combine housing and transportation. So housing is more expensive in New York City, but you spend less on transportation and the countervalence in uh, St. Louis, Missouri, for example. I'll I'll post this in the show notes. It would be it would be useful maybe to uh explain why or how how and why car-oriented development became so foundational to the American scene. And I'll start because I'll be giving kind of like the uncharitable take. Uh but <laughs> Cars are unequivocally valuable. I'm not, I'm not going to deny that. But they're only valuable insofar as the apparatus can exist to accommodate them. So, you know, driving a car in like an old medieval town is going to be a pain in the ass because the roads are narrow. They're, they're not built to accommodate high-speed traffic. And it's likely that you'll end up going as fast as walking depending on what the structure looks like. So by necessity, you have to widen the roads. You have to make them flat. You you have to make big curves. The, the best example is a, a cloverleaf interchange, which is you know fucking massive if you ever kind of visually inspect it from a human angle instead of just a driving angle. And of course, you need space for temporary storage. So the average car spends 97% of its time just parked. So you need space at the origin and the destination to temporarily store your vehicle. And the way cities have uh, accommodated this, the way American cities have accommodated this is by uh, enforcing parking minimums. So at any time you build a building, whether it's a house, a bowling alley, or a monastery, there's some code that specifically outlines how much parking space per square footage you are required to build. The concern here is that if the developers don't provide this parking minimum, then the parking is just going to spill over into public streets and that takes up a common good. So what this what you end up with is this kind of like self-serving mechanism where you need people drive cars and they expect parking to be free. So you need big parking lots at your origin and then you need big roads and then you need big parking lots at your destination. All of this serves to further separate origin and destination from each other, which means that it just encourages you to get a car because it makes, because walking through that hellscape is just atrocious. (laughs) So it's the self-serving mechanism where you need a car because you need a car because the environment has been built with the idea that you need a car in mind. And it's hard to break away from it unless you, you know, move to another city which is not necessarily available to everyone because cities are understood to be more expensive than living in the suburbs or living in a rural area. Master Thief. I, I think I think your your point's well taken on some of that, um, but again, I, I I think it's it's more a function of uh, it's it's not this is inherent to car designs. It's more a function of again, this is the way we've always done it, like uh, parking lots instead of parking garages. Even when I was living in a city, you know, you could you could have 
uh, decent-sized commercial developments, which could be walkable, but they also had uh, underground parking for their cars. Uh, and the space that would normally be used for parking lots uh, was, in, instead, instead of being spread out horizontally, it was put in vertically. And I, I think it it is less a problem specifically having to do with cars uh, than the the fact that it's like, oh, this is a solution. It works. Uh, has become this is the this is the only possible solution. Uh, another thing that just came to mind is um, uh, University brought this up is the problem of impermeability with pavement. Uh, this has been especially um, a problem in the United States in coastal cities uh, like Miami, Houston, New Orleans. Um, that you you get where where you get massive amounts of rainfall. The rain has nowhere to go, so they have to keep. Uh, dealing with with the second level externalities, uh, one of the solutions that I've seen to that uh, is uh, semi permeable or permeable pavements, which allow water to go th- to go through this otherwise solid surface, which is suitable for driving, and it will it will operate exactly like it did before the surface was was paved over and provide a place for this water to go. So you don't need these these massive canals uh, and sewer systems and and everything else. Again. It's it's a problem of designing for the future instead of just saying cars were the problem. Let's get rid of the cars. In Paris, pretty much all parking areas are underground, and for me, that's a standard place to park a car. Yeah, but the the thing to keep in mind is that building underground is significantly more expensive than just asphalting a field. Yeah, that's something. That's a really important point to keep in mind. Um, with Master Thief's point about that, you can build parking up. It's extremely expensive to build parking up. Uh, my professors in the the city planning department, um, who worked with our the university, doing all the uh, environmental documents and such for uh, the buildings on campus and the parking structures, said that uh, the going rate for an above ground parking structure, uh, the average cost per parking spot is about $10,000. So the only place where you can make parking garages above or below ground economically viable is in very large cities where there's, you know, a huge mall or a stadium or something, uh, or in a downtown area for a city that has 40,000 people or something. This is why you don't see parking garages in, you know, towns with 5,000 people, it's because the economics just doesn't pencil out. And that's the same point that I would also make about the the permeable pavement and semi-permeable pavement. There's basically no reason for any developer or anyone to do that unless they are incentivized to, required to, or they just really get off on helping the environment. So th- there's the Sightline Institute, which is a, a nonprofit that focuses on urbanism. And uh, Alan Durning has had a number of uh, articles that I really enjoy that specifically target the issue of parking minimum. So he has some actual numbers. And back when I and I've I've and I've confirmed this in like with my own research and talking to developers, but underground uh, parking spots can cost anywhere from thirty to fifty thousand dollars a spot. Uh, and that tends to quickly approach the cost of the actual apartment itself. So we'll also post this on the show notes. The There's a website called Graphing Parking, which kind of puts it into stark contrast in terms of how big, how much space 
a parking spot takes up, especially when you compare it side to side to an actual apartment. So typically an apartment will require, in a city will require something like 1.5 or 2 parking spots per apartment or per bedroom. And when you consider, you know, the amount of space the space the spot itself takes plus the access, which means uh the on-ramp and off-ramp as well as the the aisle in between the slots, it quickly starts to be almost as much or sometimes more than the space that the apartment takes up. So you end up with buildings in large parts of the country that are half parking, half half things or half places, half places and half parking. Uh, And some cities even reflect this, where uh, I think, for instance, Buffalo, New York, 50% of all land is devoted to parking spots or to to driving, which is, to me, is just like insane. Who wants to defend that? (laughs) (laughs) I think that that is a fair point. But at the same time, uh, so long as you are able to redevelop land as it, as the surrounding population gets more, gets more dense that's not really a problem uh the pro- the problem of path dependency is is only present if you are if you say it's like okay once something is built it can never be changed uh again if you look at the way uh japan builds uh they they don't go into historic preservation or uh, preserving neighborhood character uh, houses are routinely torn down and rebuilt on the order of every 20 years uh, as as better technology better construction methods uh, new designs become available and there's there's this continuous uh, adaption um, to the environment rather than just saying it's like okay once a parking lot always a parking lot and we can't really do anything about it so I don't I don't think that's that's really a, a, a fair slam against uh, dense uh, car accommodating uh, development. The other, the other point that that I'm I'm think I'm I was sort of musing about last night while thinking about this podcast uh, is that uh, the roads are, are are basically a a form agnostic uh, uh, you know space for for transportation. They couldn't accommodate all kinds of, of, of different form of transportation. You can have cars, you can have bicycles, you can have pedestrians, and it's, it's just a matter uh, of appropriately marking off space for those to go. Uh, and, you know, Yassine was talking earlier about uh, the way that um, they, they, they started segregating out the different uses between you know, uh, cars and pedestrians. And, and again, that, that was, that was a matter of safety concerns. And if you look at, if you look at older cities where they use, uh, traffic circles and roundabouts, uh, and in, in a lot of European countries I've read, they don't do a lot of traffic signaling. There's, there's sort of this expectation, uh, that cars, that, that cars and drivers will be sharing the roads with pedestrians and that it is on the cars and the drivers to be, uh, equally, if not more situationally aware than people who are who are walking or on bicycles, and uh, instead of instead of this this the, uh, the the liability breakdown that we have in the United States, where you know if you are in your defined lane, you're fine, but if you're in someone else's some other form's defined lane, uh, you're the one at fault. So I I, I, re- I really think that this is a this is a problem more of design than of anything inherent. Uh, to, to to any one of these 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 modes of transportation, introversity. That might be true, but <laughs> the whole problem 
here that we're trying to get over the hump with is the political opposition to trying to fix these issues. So yeah, exactly as you say, we can redevelop, we can do infill, we can put in housing where there used to be parking, we can densify, we can knock down single family homes and put in apartment buildings. But one, property rights in the United States are extremely strong. So, you know, besides eminent domain, you can't really just have people like we're going to knock down your house. Like you can't really just do that. Second, in many places, their uh, neighbors of projects are given immense power over the developers and over the decision-making process so that, you know, despite there may be a housing affordability crisis in a state or in a city, but just because these 20 people living in this one spot don't want a three-story apartment building to go go in down the block, that apartment building doesn't get built. So it's, yes, we can, we can change all these things. And you say it's not a problem that's inherent to to the car itself as an as an object or as a as a concept but that's not really i don't know that's just kind of sidestepping the point which is you know go out to any city and try to make uh a let's say equitable go on the streets as a bicyclist and you're either going to get killed injured or you're going to get people laugh you know insulting you, yelling at you, throwing things at you, coal rolling you. I've had multiple instances like that happen to me while on a bike in a very nice, very white, very rich city. You should explain you should explain what coal rolling oh, is. Oh. <laughs> coal coal rolling is uh I'm actually probably one of you knows better how it's actually done, but it basically It's it's when you uh, intentionally sabotage your uh, fuel efficiency to own the libs. Yeah. <laughs> and you do it by uh, modifying your exhaust instead of putting out vaporless or instead of putting out transparent gasoline fumes, you put out these thick uh, volumes, thick plumes of black smoke and, and you do it to piss off environmentalists, I guess. It's a, it's a form of uh, red tribe signaling. Yeah. So, so I've seen <laughs> very, very, very hostile I've signaling. I've seen a bicyclist get coal rolled, like the trucks going down the street and the bicyclist is going down the street the same direction and the truck clearly intentionally fires up its you know whatever its exhaust to do that as it's passing the bicyclist so we'll we'll get into i guess ways to reverse this trend or even if it should be reversed i kind of want to get into the history as to why it is the way it is and again it, i fully own up to the fact that this is probably not going to be a charitable uh, recollection of how we got to this point. But I, when I look at the United States and when I see uh, its urban policy, I see a ton of conflicting goals that kind of get mixed up together in this compromise that doesn't satisfy anyone fully. One example, housing in the United States is seen as a form of investment. It's not viewed as a pure necessity. It's seen as something that you buy with the strong expectation that the thing that you just bought is going to go up in value. Now this puts up some really perverse incentives for everyone involved. Uh, there's kind of this mentality of, you know, hurry up and uh, run in inside the castle so that you can pull up the drawbridge and prevent other people from coming in. Uh, you want to buy a house cheap, 
but then actively work towards preventing your house from remaining cheap and for it to be more expensive. To me, that that's what explains this like kind of vociferous uh, nimbyism, not in my backyard uh, energy that you see from neighbors whenever you know you, you see like a bunch of single family homes, and then someone's gonna wants to build an apartment. Presumably, that's going to lower the value of the housing stock, or you know, bring in undesirables, and that is going to sabotage the housing prices of the people that are already established. So, it's perfectly rational for them to oppose new development if that's going to put it at risk, especially if it's seen as the standard asset for middle class Americans to invest in. This is in contrast to uh, many places around the world. the The best example that would serve as illustration for this dichotomy is, is looking at Mexico. Uh, There's plenty of cities that are right on the border and you can just from looking at a map, you can clearly see which side is Mexico and which side is the United States because the zoning regulations and expectations drive so much of the difference that you see uh, sculpted out in, in real time. So with the United States, housing is generally expensive. It's something that you, aspire to after working really hard for many decades. But in Mexico, you can buy a house for like $10,000 and you can easily kind of like add on to it as you get get more and more money. And you can also run a business from your home, which is much more of a an, an expectation there. And you could just say, well, you know, you can't compare $10,000 between in terms of housing between the United States and Mexico. But what you can compare is home ownership rates. And the home ownership rates in Mexico are fucking sky high. They're like 80%. Uh, whereas in the United States, it tends to hover around 60% or so. Um, but you're describing this as a psychological thing, whereas isn't it just a legal almost difference in terms of like, especially the zoning? Yeah, I'm not I'm not actually uh, so, describing it as a psychological thing. I, I, this is kind of a natural uh outcome of this uh, policy preference that has that happened on accident in the United States. So for example, uh, I, I, I would attribute it largely to the, to the fact that you can write off your mortgage interest as yeah. an expense in your taxes. So it makes, it makes sense to take your pre-tax income and kind of just fold it into a mortgage rate. It, it will drive bigger, it will, it will drive purchases of bigger homes and more expensive homes and, and you're going to have an interest to maintain the value of that home because you've invested so much into it. And so it's not a surprise that you see such a big difference between closely situated places like uh, cities that on the border between the United States and Mexico. There's a clear difference in terms of which side is which and which side has the higher home ownership rate. If this like shadow preference of encouraging home ownership in the United States actually worked, then it probably would have a different narrative, but it doesn't seem to, to work at least compared to other countries. Like Mexico is just fucking trouncing the United States in that, in that realm. Master thief. And in, in, in addition to all that, um, and, and, you know, you're, 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 you're totally right to identify, you know, tax policy, um, and general psychology about, about property rights. Uh, there's, there's, uh, there's, there's other psychological factors at play. There's all, there's all kinds of other, uh, legal factors, uh, in play. Uh, the way, uh, you know, I, back when I was living on, on the, on the East coast, uh, this whole, but, uh, my property values, 
uh, I, I would I would call it you know somewhat uncharitably uh, that 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 people had this obsession again with with maintaining the value of their homes and and the the exclusivity of their neighborhoods and the way that we've tied uh, school district boundaries uh, into you know the property values of of the homes that are around them and the the better the property values the better the schools would be. Um, that's, that's absolutely insane. I don't know of any other place, I don't know of any other place in the world that does it. The way the, the massive and quite frankly, scarily arbitrary amount of power held by local uh, zoning boards and regional planning commissions, uh, where, you know, they, 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 they set all these, these very firm rules. This is where you get the, the, the single family density things. Uh, and, and you can, you can go and you can art and you can argue against it or you can argue for a variance, but that usually means you have to make all sorts of concessions and there's all kinds of opportunity for, um, for corruption and, and, and self-dealing to set in. Uh, there is a, um, there was a post on, on market urbanism that I put on our Discord. Uh, it was called the, the Disillusionment of the American Planner or How We All Became uh, Mark Brindanowitz from Parks and Recreation, who's just this this bitter, soulless husk of a planner. Um, and the, the, the author's point is that urban planning is, is being forced to do work that ultimately uh, it's not very good at as, as far as social equity. And, you know, if, if you look at it, from from that perspective, uh, anti-car, you know, all this anti-car stuff is just one more political special interest from people who want to, um, who who have this 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 grand vision, and they 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 want to impose it from the top down, and maybe it's that sense of that everything has to be planned and then set in amber, and if you if you if you want to go against the plan, you're the person to blame. Uh, that 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 is that is creating all of this, and I, I think, you know, larger than than just being open to different forms of transportation, we should be open to letting other people, like, live the way they want to live, and and not be so possessive of of our property. And you know, I I, I think there's there's kind of a fitting irony in that a lot of the people who are most in favor, uh, at least back when I was living on the East Coast, a lot of people who are most in favor of, of this all, of all this walkable development, bikeable development, they were the same people who were uh, also the very much the NIMBYs and the very much concerned with property values and the schools. And, and I think it's, it's just, you know, one, one, one giant mass of, uh, I, I, I don't want to sound too harsh, but, but urban selfishness. Mm. Ho, ho, ho. But I, I tell you that people in France are just as invested in their home and they wanted to keep their value. And it's a big, also the major investment for middle class family is that we don't have zoning boards. And basically the state is fairly directive in when it wants to build. And when it wants to build something, it's going to get built. And we basically don't hear about people complaining about something being built to prevent it from being built. Because at least as far as I know, it <laughs> doesn't really happen. And I think that's really like the key difference. To Holy on the shit, dude! That's you, uh, <laughs> man. Fucking shit! Come to California <laughs> and just—you would not believe. People will literally make things up. <laughs> I, I've talked about Californians complaining about how hard it was to get like fiber to have a good internet connection, and how it was super expensive to compare compared to what we have here. And it was also due to this property rights. So I can imagine what it is to build a 
to build oh, a subway. No, 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 no. Well, I, I don't, I don't think it's as simple <laughs> as saying that the United States has like strong property rights uh, protections. I, I mean, we'll talk about the Japanese zoning system in a moment, but I mean, you. What I think drives and I, university, I'll, I'll hold on to your thought. I'll let you chime in. Yeah, no problem. In terms of my opinion, and again, I'm owning up that it's uncharitable. Uh, but what drives this like weird mismatch of housing policy in the United States is this, what I would call like stealth or policy by stealth. And what I mean by this is, you know, we had racial covenants in the United States that were these restrictions tied to the deed of a piece of property where it would explicitly say like no black people here or no Jews here. And that was legally enforced. That, that means you, you can take people to court if, if for instance, like a homeowner sold to a black family and they were barred by a covenant, the neighbors can take them to court and say, Hey, this is not allowed by the covenant. And the judge will say, yeah, that's correct. Like don't sell to black people. So this was enshrined in the, in the apparatus. Eventually the Supreme court, you know, poo pooed that party and said, no, you can't do that. But it didn't get rid of the desire. Uh, people still have a desire to live in segregated uh, neighborhoods. So they could, while they couldn't do it explicitly, they did it by stealth. So, they found out, they realized that, you know, most minorities, most racial minorities tend to live in apartments. So you just ban apartments from a neighborhood and you sort of solve the problem. Uh, most minorities tend to be poorer and they, there is a disparity in terms of who has access to uh, a vehicle. You know, you have these uh, these policy preferences, like the desire is still there to, to segregate. So, but instead of doing it explicitly, you do it by proxy. So you ban apartment buildings, you make vehicles basically a functional requirement to get around so that people are disincentivized from uh, living near you if they don't have a car. So it serves as a way to segregate people. It's not clean. It's very costly to yourself because you're basically imposing a tax on yourself that you can pay, but you hope that the undesirables can't pay. Uh, and that tends to be, that's what I see as driving, um, uh, a large part of this policy and university you wanted to say yeah, something there, uh, a couple points i guess first this you seen what you said kind of about this web of of um what you called stealth stealth legislation or stealth laws or whatever um this is a really good point because their urban planning ties into so many it ties into literally everything because you have to plan how to get everything in and out of your city, the people, the goods, the water, the sewer, the electricity, everything. So, uh, you know, first we have the, the mortgage, everything having to do with housing, housing prices, housing tax policy, the mortgage interest tax deduction, uh, which is a huge problem, by the way, for the, the healthy housing market. All of these, all of these things play in, and then you have stuff at the local level, like uh, you know, anti-loitering laws and laws that prevent people from sleeping in their cars or from sleeping outside. Uh, and then again, back at the at the federal and state level, you know, we have uh, FEMA has these flood insurance rate maps, which are what insurance companies use to. Uh, it's the official source of. Uh, what insurance companies use to decide the the rates for flood insurance and you know where they will and won't give people flood insurance and the maps are extremely out of date you know you can go 
just Google it right now and you'll find six articles from the last few months with all these hurricanes in the south uh, about how these these maps aren't up to date. And so it's just all there's a huge web of problems that anyone at an individual level, at a local level, even even a planner, even a city councilman, even a mayor, uh, you just can't you can't do anything about and you can't solve it on your own. And it creates environments that you simply can't uh, work within. Like, like Prop 13 is a great example in California where the state can't reassess property values uh, if you, on your, you know, your residential property, except when it gets sold. So you could live in the same property for 40 years and it will always be assessed at the price that you originally bought it at in, you know, 1970 or 1975 or whatever. And uh, it will not be reassessed to its current market value until uh, it is a change of it's sold to a different person and not inherited. So just all these laws that create these horrible uh, precedents and limitations on urban planners, which is in part what leads to, you know, what we're talking about, the Mark Brandenowitz, uh, this harried guy who's just fed up with everything. Uh, and that kind of leads into my second point, which I promise will be shorter, <laughs> uh, which is the land value tax. And a land value tax is uh, a tax on the unimproved value of the land. So unlike, it's not a property tax. It's not about the building. It's not about the improvement that you make on the land. It's just about the value of the land. So if you have someone in a single family home who lives in the middle of San Francisco somehow, then their tax appropriately will go up astronomically because the land value is so high. But if you have someone out in the middle of nowhere who has a very large home on a huge property, but you know, you're in some county where there's 5,000 people total population, your taxes are probably going to go down because your land has almost no value. So um, that's one, one major change that I think would, uh, I don't see it being very realistically happening, but uh, I think that would be a huge, huge, huge improvement to um, the health of the real estate market and urban planning policy. Yeah. And so to double back on what we were talking about earlier, I don't agree that policy is set the way it is because the United States just has stronger property rights protections because in fact, you would see the opposite because, you know, zoning is by definition a restriction on your property rights. When, when the local zoning board says you can only build single family homes, that is a burden that your property has to shoulder because you're not allowed to build whatever you want. Now, granted, there's a benefit to this. There's, it's like a coordination benefit where so long as this restriction applies uniformly to all your neighbors as well, then there's a benefit similar to how a cartel is structured because everyone is similarly handicapped. So the impact on that would be to, to raise the, the cost of it. And I'll, I'll say it, like, I don't, the, the way housing investment is structured in this country, I don't see a difference from, from a Ponzi scheme because by definition, <laughs> the, the only way that you will benefit from your house gaining in value is if some sucker like buys it from you. If there's no sucker at the end willing to to take on to pay like the ridiculous price that's now 
the value of your home, then there is no investment. It's not, you're not creating anything necessarily. You're just kind of holding on to something and hopefully the apparatus around you, the zoning board, the, the, uh, land restrictions, hopefully those work towards improve, those work towards increasing the value of your home, but doesn't, it doesn't materially change it. You're not creating something. You're just hoping that scarcity hits your area at the right spot. So this is in contrast to a system like uh, the one in Japan, which is very different than what we see in the United States. And the main difference is that it's set at the national level. Who wants to give a, a summary of Jap- Japanese uh, urban planning? Let me talk about how, uh, how, how zoning is done in, in North America. Um, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, there was a... Uh, this. Zoning, it originally started uh, because of the problem of different and incompatible land usage. And so they, this, this, was in, this is in the era of the progressives. And so they thought, okay, just, just, just have government solve the coordination problem. And so what they came up with uh, uh, got the name Euclidean zoning after, uh, I believe it was a Supreme Court case involving the village of Euclid, Ohio, uh, which upheld, uh, municipal zoning as, you know, it, 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 it was, it was constitutional. Uh, it did not affect property rights. So what basically happens is that, is that there is a, um, an university, you can correct me on, on, on any of this that I, that I get wrong, um, is that there is a, uh, there is a defined plan which segregates, you know, residential from commercial, from industrial, and within there, there's there's varying fine degrees of each one of them, and and the and the purpose is to keep these incompatible land uses uh, segregated so that you know the the externalities from one kind of land use don't affect the others, and it is very these these plans these plans are set at the local, frequently state, frequently regional levels. Uh, and there is a, in, in each jurisdiction, there is a uh, professional zoning staff and a board of, of zoning appeals, which can grant uh, exceptions and variances to these rules. But it's it's all very set in stone. It's all very expertise dependent. Uh, and it's, once a plan is made, it is, it is very hard to change and it locks in uh, a lot of existing planning. Is, is that a fair summary? Yeah, and if you've played any of the SimCity games, you know exactly what how this plays out. <laughs> uh, you, you can only you zone one area for residential and only residential, and then another area is business and another area is industrial. There's no mixed zoning. Uh, everything is segregated by by type. On the on the whole, on the you know at the overall level, that's more or less correct. But there are, I mean, almost every city even small cities tend to have various mixed use zones uh, in which they allow most typically uh, commercial and residential. So usually it'll be something like a store on the ground floor and like apartments above it, uh, that sort of thing. Um, But that's, yeah, that's an excellent description of of the modern North American zoning, um, which just for a little extra context, uh, originally came out of the uh, the problems of the tenements in New York City and uh, the factories and the having these buildings that were set very close together, uh, close to factories that had pollution and fire risk, uh, created a bunch of fires, obviously, and these extremely unhealthy, unsanitary conditions uh, that 
brought about the beginnings of, of separating uses in the United States. Yeah, I wouldn't say that it was completely unfounded. Um, it is definitely a, a solution to the very real problem of, you know, no one wants to live next to a noisy and polluting factory. So a solution is quite obviously to just like segregate it to another area. That's yeah, hundred percent. It's, it was instituted for excellent and very reasonable purposes. Like that's, you know, you look at this back a hundred years ago and you say, yes, that makes sense. The problem came as it developed over time and we started to develop this extremely restrictive zoning system, which is in contrast to Japan's, um, the main, the main difference it seems between the two systems. Well, one is that Japan's zoning is national rather than uh, local and done city by city, which creates a nightmare for developers and planners uh, in the United States. But in in the U.S., you have so if you have zone A, B, C, and D, in zone A you get residential, in zone B you get commercial, in zone C you get uh, big box commercial, you know whatever, et cetera, et cetera. You can only have that one use or maybe two uses per zone versus what we're looking at with Japanese zoning is they have the most restrictive zone where you can only have residential, you know, small scale residential. But then in the next zone up, you can have residential and also schools and small commercial. And in the next zone up, you can have residential and schools and larger commercial and offices. And so instead of having you must have only this in this location. It gives you this freedom of you can build anything up to this level because we generally have, we know the level of nuisance that each thing is, you know, a single family home, a detached single family home is not a big producer of noise or pollution or a huge amount of traffic or anything like that versus industrial factories or big box commercial stores. Uh, but the, what this does, the benefit of this is that it allows developers to come into a city to look at the market and to actually be able to effectively and efficiently respond to the demand that's in that market uh, because they have all this, this flexibility and availability of land to them. If you look at a U.S. city's zoning map, it is... <laughs> <laughs> there's like 20 different zones there, you know, 25 different colors and each one you have to go and look up in the table, which specific type of building you can build, which you end up with uh, nowhere near enough affordable housing, uh, at least in the modern case of California. Oh, oh, oh. Um, I wanted to react a bit to what Yasin was explaining about people in the U S that were pushing to basically avoid dense development near where they lived and using the zoning system as a way of doing that, uh, as a way of sort of keeping crime out or keeping the wrong kind of people out. So in France, we have a law saying you have to have 20% of public housing in each city, each town. Um, otherwise, you have to pay a fine. The town has to pay a fine, so higher taxes. A few towns pay the fine, but most of them do it. So that means that the public housing is much more dispersed. And while people, there's basically, there's no point in avoiding dense development because you have to live with dense development anyway. So maybe this can also be an explanation of the factor. There, there are cities in the United States that have addressed this, where they believe that they're required to provide, you know, public housing. But the way they go about it is just making these, like, at least like in the '60s during the age of urban renewal, is to just create these massive uh, super blocks where you concentrate all your poor people lodging into one area, 
and you make it, you know, extremely dense and not necessarily a fun place to live in because it wasn't built with the human scale in mind, but you create, you know, thousands of units of housing and they're uh, relegated to just single area of the city. We have those, the infamous banlieue. However, I, there may be a difference of scale in that uh, when I say city, I mean, in, in France, we just say ville, which is, you covers both town and city. Uh, maybe are probably smaller, like uh, square meter wise, than the US. Like Paris itself is a fairly small city, in that a lot of the urban area is actually technically a bunch of diff- small different towns, townships, and each ind- individually, each of the townships has to have this constraint. So even though there are some areas that are notorious for having more of that, we it is still does force a kind of spreading out. Right? It's not maybe not super effective yet, but it's it's like those areas have to be nearby. Master Thief, you wanted to say something. The ratio, the twenty percent ratio that let's stay civilized was talking about in France is at least double, perhaps triple, uh, the ratio of regular housing to low income housing uh, developments that I've seen talked about in the U.S. Uh, back when I was living on 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 the East Coast in Washington D.C., it was routine to have about. Uh, 10% of, of, of the housing and no more set aside for low income housing purposes. And, you know, any, any, anything above that was, was absolute pure gravy. And again, the way that that was done is that in, in exchange for various, uh, concessions against zoning laws, uh, what, what the, the, the developers would promise more uh, low-income housing, which is again, it was one of the one of the ways to to get around and 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 you know in, in incentivize development. But it's it sort of led to this this perverse incentive where, in order to gain uh, all this low-income housing, uh, they they had to uh, accommodate uh, these developments, and a lot of them would be uh, would be you know out of out of scale, out of place, just just sort of not 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 fit in with the neighborhood you know it 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 just it just allowed for a lot of corruption and self-dealing and things that that were about serving the interests of zoners and planners and politicians and special interest groups and not the people who lived in a neighborhood yeah so we spent quite a bit of time talking shit about cars which is you know i enjoy it uh how about we try to say some good things about car oriented development and I'll start, or at least I'll try. (laughs) (laughs) When I visit my parents in the suburbs, I recognize just how many aspects of suburban living that I genuinely do miss. Like, I I like that it's relatively quiet. I don't have to deal with the noise of the constant noise of sirens. It's kind of nice walking around the few parks that they do have and driving around to like run errands can be nice comparatively with a vehicle. At this point, of course, like I've, I've like become so habituated to urban living where me going to the grocery store like three times a week to buy a few things here and there is just not a big deal. Uh, and similarly, like there's just kind of like this bevy of, of options when it comes to restaurants and, and small stores that I can have access to. But admittedly, I live in like a relatively expensive area and not everyone has the capacity to replicate that kind of living, but that to me, that's largely because housing is, is segregated by, by class, at least implicitly. And that if you want kind of, if you want it all, you have to pay for it. The, I can also recognize utility for, for car ownership for, for families. And I'll let other people 
kind of chime in on that. And I also have to admit that I have to grapple with the fact that not everyone shares my preference. Because if if I was true, if I was resolute in that my policy preferences should be trouncing everyone else's, then we would see a lot more people move into, uh, at least within the United States, we'd see a lot more people move into pedestrian-friendly cities, uh, either in in the East Coast or in the Pacific Northwest or wherever else that you may find it. Instead, we see booming populations in car-oriented metropolitan areas. So we have Atlanta, Houston, Phoenix, Los Angeles. All of these are examples where there's constant population increases and that's because people still want to live there, even though they recognize that they have to be, they have to drive everywhere to get there. I don't know how to bridge that gap. When I see people spending, you know, three hours a day commuting, and you know, as we said before, like maybe this is not going to be an issue in the future. But when I see people spending three hours plus a day commuting, I just find that to be kind of like my personal hellhole. I used to do it. I used to drive like an hour and a half every day each way to work, and I fucking hated every moment of it. It caused me an immense amount of stress. I didn't understand why anyone would like uh, volitionally choose to go down this route. And I, I abandoned it as soon as possible. I don't know if that, that is just like kind of like a generational preference because clearly other people do not agree with me. Clearly they, they're willing to relocate their entire family way outside kind of like the center of town just so they can have like a big house that they barely go to because they're like spending so much of their time driving back and forth and like the soulless treadmill. So I have to grapple with the fact that at least when it comes to revealed preferences, people don't agree with me. And I, I don't really have a good reason for that. Master Thief. Back back when I was, was living in DC, I tried to live a car-free lifestyle. I, I, I really tried. I, I paid out the nose for an apartment. Uh, it was a one bedroom apartment. It was technically low income housing four blocks from a metro station, uh, and my, my intent was, was to walk as much as possible. I mean, I, 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 I still had a car because, you know, where I was living was, was not quite dense enough to, uh, to, to, to support the, the, the sort of everywhere mass transit, but uh, I, I lived four blocks from one metro station. I worked two blocks from another. I really tried to make it work, but the problem was that every time I would, would get on the metro, there would always be some kind of delay, some kind of problem, some kind of issue. Uh, and I would have to, have to go to my boss hat in hand saying, it's like, I'm sorry I was late because the red line shit the bed again. Uh, and after about five or six years of this, I just completely gave up and, and started driving. Uh, and, uh, on, on, on some days I would, I would notice I would be literally getting back, uh, an hour, sometimes more, uh, perfectly to myself from driving, uh, than, than, than in taking mass transit. This for me led to the notion that car driven development is, is, is quite easy because it doesn't rely on a lot of trust in these, these centralized institutions. It doesn't take a lot of trust to, uh, lay down a strip of asphalt. When you're asking people to move into cities, you're asking them to implicitly trust government, trust these transportation infrastructures, uh, to do what they say, to arrive on time, to depart on time, to not delay you in a tunnel, uh, in an air conditioned car. And, that's that that I think is probably one of the one of the key things that's 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 keeping development so car oriented even in cities is that a lot of this infrastructure, uh, especially in the United States, it just doesn't work when it's supposed to. Introversity. 
I'm tempted to bring back kind of a way that you were talking about cars earlier and saying that the problems that we're experiencing aren't due to cars necessarily, but due to the the planning and the way that we've developed ourselves around cars. So the same is true to some extent here with public transit, which is, I, I think Yassine had mentioned earlier to some extent that uh, you well, there's this constant fight between car oriented and pedestrian oriented and bicycle oriented and public transit because each one of these things takes away space and money from the others. So yes, the US currently has not very good public transit, probably some of the worst in the modern, you know, the the developed world, but you know, again, to bring back the point is that it's not inherent to the method of transit. It's about how it's done. So, and, you know, to go back to Japan as one example, the trains are so legendarily on time that they give you a note to your boss, you know, apologizing and saying, uh, giving you the excuse that the train was late in the rare instances that it happens to make you late. Uh, or, you know, going to Curitiba in Brazil, they have bus rapid transit where uh, in certain stations at high high traffic stations, there are buses every 90 seconds. Literally every 90 seconds, there's another bus. And the, I mean, if you just go, I can't explain the whole public transit system in Curitiba in, you know, a minute here. But if you go look it up, it's one of the absolute most well thought out systems in the world. So if we had a little bit more willingness of the people and uh, kind of <laughs> uh, not this constant political fight about anything that's not just for cars, like building a highway or building another lane or building uh, wider roads or whatever, then we might be able to actually make a go of having, you know, reasonably uh, useful public transit or biking or walking paths. And I will say that in my city, my current city, uh, the public transit is extremely reliable. I think that's one reason I, I'm kind of pessimistic about by the center, this enterprise, because the way forward to improving the situation, at least from like my vantage point, is asking drivers to give up on amenities that have been provided to them for either free or at a substantially discounted rate. So they don't have to pay for roads. The legal apparatus is built in such a way that it, uh, it excuses a lot of the collateral consequences of driving. So for instance, if you crash and kill someone in New York City, there's a 95% chance that you won't even get a ticket. To me, I, I, I don't know how to square that. that. That seems like just outrageous. But that's how, uh, in comparison to, for example, in, in Denmark, where there's a system of strict, strict liability, if you're the bigger vehicle and you cause damage, then you're just assumed to be at fault unless you can prove otherwise. If a truck crashes into a car, the truck is assumed to be at fault because they herald a bigger responsibility by driving a bigger vehicle and they're presumably better trained to avoid the situations. And they're presumed to be at fault unless they can showcase that the smaller vehicle did something wrong or uh, negligent or whatever the standard is to, to shift away the blame. And similarly, if you're a car and you hit a, a bicycle, then you're assumed to be at fault. This is not the case in the United States. It, it tends to be kind of like the other way around where the car is assumed to be not at fault and something 
the pedestrian or the cyclist, they must have done something wrong to, to be in that, in that situation. And this is another way that it kind of like significantly reduces the cost of driving because of the negative externalities are whisked away by the legal procedure. Did you see what he was wearing? He was wearing a helmet and Lycra. He deserved it. <laughs> yeah, it's something like that. Or like, why are they even biking in the first place? Like the, the, the roads are for cars. I, I mean, I ride my bike all the time. I've gotten yelled at by drivers all the time because I'm riding a bike. I've, I've gotten yelled out. Uh, yelled at for like crossing at a crosswalk. Uh, people were so confused that I was uh, at a crosswalk. <laughs> they were like yelling at me for for that no because it was it was such a bizarre scene for them to witness. I I don't think they understood what a crosswalk was. And you know, admittedly, this is in the suburbs where people are just like deathly afraid. I was at a visible crosswalk and people were honking <laughs> at me for being on it. And I I wanted desperately to just have a conversation with them and say. What do you think a crosswalk is for? And I think <laughs> I think I would have gotten something like, "Well, you're supposed to wait until like there's no there's no cars, and then you can cross." Well, it's like, okay, why do I need a crosswalk for that? I can just do that in the middle of the street, right? It, it didn't it didn't make any sense, but that's kind of like how how the dust has settled in terms of of car culture. Let's stay civilized. In France, we've been told during the car, the driving license training, that uh, if like you're driving and some guy just randomly runs across the street, no crosswalk, then you're still at fault. Yeah, yeah, that's that's nowhere near the situation here. Yeah, okay. I had no idea it wasn't the case in Holy Paris. shit, dude! The people literally like are drunk and will hit people and kill them, and like all they get is the pr the price of the DUI. Or there are people who literally mow down a cyclist or cross over a lane or something and just completely wipe out someone. And uh, in many cases, there's literally no punishment or it's like a year suspension of your license or something. Uh, there's plenty of examples of kind of anti-pedestrian uh, enforcement, uh, one of which involved this uh, strip in uh, northern Virginia that had it was a kind of like a busy road along Route 1 that had a lot of commercial development. So if you work in one side of the street and you wanted to go to fucking McDonald's on the other side, you either, if you wanted to do it legally, you had to walk, no joke, like two or three miles to get to the intersection so that you can wait up to eight minutes for the light to change. And then you can cross and then walk to the other place. Of course, what a lot of people do is chance it. They, they try to like play fucking Frogger with four lanes of <laughs> high speed traffic And a lot of them got hit. And the way the police response to this was literally to give people tickets as they were being airlifted to the hospital because they were jaywalking. So it was just kind of like assumed by default that the people that got hit were at fault. So that's kind of like, this is not unusual in the United States. It's kind of like standard. It's like, why are you walking? Like you must be a dumbass for walking. Like it's your own fault for getting hit by the car without consideration about how infeasible it is to traverse these areas uh, by foot. Go ahead, Master Thief. And I've, I've, I've heard plenty of these, these, these stories, uh, myself. There is, there is the one post in the thread about, uh, the, the, the poor mother and, and her, her two kids. They get off, uh, a bus in, in Atlanta and the bus stop is on the other side of this, of this four lane, basically divided highway from an apartment. And, you know, to, 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 to get home, they would have to do exactly what you said. It's like go up to the intersection, wait for it to cross, 
and then and then go go all the way back and you know her her her, ki- her kids retired so they just chance crossing the street and you know she and her two kids got got hit by a drunk driver there this is this has gotten so much attention that there's there's actually been a specific uh traffic signal built for uh built for like the the middle of of these of these big blocks they're, they're called hawk intersections it's uh for for the most of the time it just works like your average street but if you want to cross uh, they they press a button. It starts flashing yellow lights to to say drivers like okay pedestrians are going to start using this now. Eventually, it it goes it goes to solid red lights and that allows enough time for people to cross, uh, and then and then switches back. So, so again, it's 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 not it's not exactly that that. Uh, this is this is malicious planning. It's it's not it's not like uh, the urban planners or AI that just hates you. They just really don't care. Or uh, to be even more charitable, they just don't think about the consequence of these designs. And again, this bad design can be mitigated uh, in a lot of cases by better design. Whether you know just 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 building on improvements or you know tearing down and, and trying from scratch again. Yeah, and the the thing to mention, you're talking about Raquel Wilson, uh, the woman whose child, whose four year old, was killed by a drunk driver. The other thing to mention is that she was charged with, uh, I think, like negligent homicide yeah. or something for crossing the road because her son yeah, died. Yeah, ridiculous. Yes, I mean the drunk driver got in trouble. He got prosecuted and he did go to prison, but they were planning to also pro- for a hit and run. Yeah. He was like high on painkillers pain when, when he killed uh, her son, but they also wanted to prosecute her for, for daring to cross the road. This is a, I mean, this is kind of like another d- divide that I, that I foresee in that if you, if you have a car, like living in America is pretty cool. Like it's not, it's not a big deal. If you can afford a car, uh, if you can afford to always have a car running, never have to worry about it breaking down on you. If you can afford all of that, then there's no real concern that a car is going to be kind of like your detriment. You can just drive to work, uh, make your money, not have to worry about it. And you're probably going to reflect that in your voting record. And if you work at a uh, department of transportation, I, th- I find this hilarious, but you know, a lot of these departments are like in the middle of fucking nowhere. So the planning engineers have to drive to work. And so from their standpoint, they don't see a problem. Um, like the department of transportation in Maryland is like in the middle of a forest it's literally inaccessible by foot unless you want to go through two miles in this trail in the woods that connects the, like the closest rail station to, to the place. So it's hard to envision like a scenario where the people that are in charge of these policy decisions, they're not forced to experience what it's like to traverse the, the countryside on foot or in, in any other method besides the God-given automobile that is assumed to be the default. Let's stay civilized. When I was in a student, I lived in an area that had this really nice setup where you could basically walk across the whole uh, uh, huge chunk of the town and never have to cross the street because basically it was almost in two levels. Uh, it wasn't even a very dense area, but you had the street level and above that, like all the sort of parks or whatever, all had these crossing areas and you could just walk there. It was really uh, very nice to live in. And uh, I've seen it in more den- in denser places like La Défense in Paris and uh, and Hong Kong and uh, Tokyo, like I put in the, in the notes down there. But uh, that's really a development that I think combines both. Well, you can drive around everywhere, but uh, and you have less pedestrian crossings. And if you're a pedestrian, you can just go everywhere too. Yeah, th- I also don't have a problem with that type of development, the pro- th- except that it's not viable except in like the most, in like the densest areas. So I, th- I believe it's Minneapolis that has kind of this network crisscross of 
pedestrian walkways ostensibly to protect people from the cold but it also served as like its own mini urbanism paradise because it protected people from having to cross the street yeah and that's that's kind of the thing that it feels like when in this whole argument you know cars are bad and we should design more for pedestrians and bikes etc the pushback from the other side is that we we that is us trying to have more pedestrian and bike uh, and public transit oriented development are kind of trying to impose our our views or to to you know dictate our view of the world as it should be when if anything i see it as just trying to get a speck of recognition and you know consideration among these you know it's just completely dominated by the car like if you just look at the actual percentage as we've been talking about of the different infrastructure in your city it's all roads and when you look at the breakdown of the roads almost all of it you know 85 percent or whatever is just vehicle lanes not for bikes not for pedestrians and in many cities there are if there are even sidewalks at all they're shitty they're narrow they're broken uh if there's lights you're lucky if you have lights and if they're actually at a level that you know make you feel comfortable or safe or uh actually help with visibility uh and so i see this kind of push as just we're just trying to give pedestrians and bicyclists some options and some possibility of being treated as a viable mode of transportation rather than the current status quo, which is uh, if you're not a very confident and aggressive bike rider, for example, you probably don't feel safe riding on most streets in any given American city. And that's a problem because we need women, we need children, we need everyone, you know, not just young men to be riding their bikes and reducing pollution and getting more physical exercise and becoming more connected with the community and, you know, all this stuff. Let's stay civilized. Earlier talking about the good sides of cars, uh, Yassin mentions family, and I think that is definitely a big factor because we've talked about uh, increased people living in cities more, but also a big factor is just people having smaller families or no kids at all in some cases. So for those people, of course, not having a car is completely convenient. But, uh, I mean, I have kids and having a car is very convenient for going on holidays and shopping for a big family. So there's that aspect. And there's also the whole um, living in an apartment is maybe not as good when you have kids. If you have a, y- a yard and they can play outside, it's a bit more healthy. So, uh, so yeah, that's, that's a factor too, I think. That, like, if we try to identify what the divide between sort of pro-car and pro-walkable cities, I think families push you more in the pro- pro-car side. Yeah, but although it's not necessarily this positive, um, I grew up in the city and what I cherish the most about that experience, and this is like in a foreign country, not in the United States, my family had one car, but it was kind of like rarely used only when we explicitly needed to leave the city. And what I cherish the most about that experience is myself at like seven, eight, nine years old being able to walk to the library by myself or walk to the store to buy books or do whatever I wanted because I didn't, I wasn't dependent on 
needing to get a ride from my parents to go where I wanted to go. And that was very liberating. Oh yeah, as a teenager, it's great to be able to go everywhere. And I think that's a big difference with the US. Uh, and also I sort of turned back on that a bit, on that opinion of especially the having a yard thing in that I used to say, oh, it's a bit of a pity that I have an apartment, but at least it's convenient transit wise. Until I talked to, uh, to a friend who lives uh, further away and has a big uh, big yard. and But his kids never play outside. They're always inside in front of a screen because there's nobody to play with. <laughs> yeah, that was my experience. Oh. When, when I moved to the United States, uh, my parents lived in a suburb. And I mean, I, I hung out outside sometimes, but there just wasn't that much to do except, I guess, like walk to 7-Eleven and buy Yoohoo's. Instead, it was just much much more interesting to be at home getting fat and playing video games. Hell yeah. Go on. Okay. Uh, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to use that as, as a, as, as an opportunity to pivot to something that um, Matthew Crawford talks about in his book, uh, why we drive toward a philosophy, the open road. And that is uh, the, in, the increasing involvement of screens everywhere, uh, including even in vehicles. And that is, that is what, from his perspective, is is creating a lot of this risk is that cars are designed not so that that you can feel the road and can have situational awareness and can see uh, and experience and appreciate all the things that are going on around you. Uh, you we've, we've, we basically designed these these giant cars, particularly sport utility vehicles. Uh, they are they are insulated from from all all of the road noise. Uh, they have all these infotainment screens. Uh, you are you 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 feel like you are literally traveling outside of time, outside of space. You you have you have much more limited uh, conception of of what's going on around you. Uh, and what what he's seeing is that the dangers is that this is going to get integrated into the driving experience itself, where everything is going to be based on increasingly on screens and automation uh, and sensors and sort of removing the the driver uh, from from the loop and. Um, you know, we're, we're already we're already seeing that uh, in 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 terms of, of of driving and loss loss of awareness, loss of control, uh, people blindly following their GPS off of cliffs because they don't know any better, um, <laughs> which 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 is actually happened. Uh, f- funny story when when I when I uh, when I when I came down to Texas one time before I lived here to visit family, uh, my GPS didn't recognize that a new toll road had been built, and when I was taking this toll road. Uh, the, my, my GPS was freaking out like I was driving through someone's cornfield and saying, turn, turn, f- f- return, return to this road immediately. <laughs> turn around, turn around. Finally, I just, I just, I just had to shut the thing off. But, but, you know, his, uh, I think Crawford's, uh, broader point is, 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 is worth appreciating that, that no matter what kind of, of method of transportation you use, you have to be aware that there are other people sharing that space. Uh, and and conduct yourself in a way uh, that 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 reflects that. And when you're driving a car, you have to recognize that you have the greater mass, you have the greater acceleration, and you you can't you can't just be just just sort of like you know a a, a you know a tail just just sitting there going through going through the motions of driving. You need to you need to have active awareness. I mean, I like cars, but I it's it's also fair enough to recognize. That they, that they can be dangerous if improperly driven. So to wrap up, let's pivot towards the future of vehicles and probably focusing on uh, driverless uh, cars. 
from my standpoint, I haven't, I, I don't know where the technology is at this point. Um, there was a great deal of activity from Google and Uber regarding the development of driverless uh, technology and how to potentially make the driver obsolete. I'm in, I'm fully in favor of this for a variety of reasons. There's, there's different ways that it could shift urban policy and urban development. There's one argument that it's going to cause a significant increase in sprawl because you eliminate a big cost of sprawl, namely having to drive further, further out. If you have a full driverless technology, then it's not a big deal to live, you know, 50 or hundred miles away from a city because you don't have to bear that cost. A robot does. The other argument is that it's going to increase density because traversing in, in dense area is going to be much easier if all the cars are automated. So right now, like the standard uh, width of a, of a traffic lane is something like 15 feet. And it has to be that wide to account for uh, human error. But if it was all robots that drove, then you presumably can get rid of red lights because all the robots are aware of each other and they can just fly through an intersection because they coordinated with another vehicle uh, to avoid a collision. And you can also make, uh, you can make uh, lanes significantly narrower. Uh, and you just, and you also get rid of any need for on-street parking because the cars can just park themselves elsewhere. So it's, it's hard to tell exactly which way, which direction it's going to take, but I'm largely hopeful and optimistic that it's going to shift it in a, in the beneficial direction, or at least beneficial to me in terms of my policy preferences in traversity. I've had a, I've had a couple of professors, um, one professor actually who, who specializes in autonomous vehicles. Uh, he's written, written a few papers about it, and I think he's working on a book. There's a lot of uncertainty is the, the easiest way I could put it because there's a lot of potential for benefits Exactly as you described, you've seen you can be further away because you don't have to be paying attention while you're driving. You can be working. You can kind of take away this useless or um, to many people useless or frustrating commute time and replace it with productive work. But there's also other problems uh, that may come up that we've never had before. So one example, which could be a huge issue, is if you have a self-driving car. And it's let's say it's just a private ownership and you own it and you go to work. If you don't want it, if you don't want to pay for parking or if you don't want to bother like having it find a parking spot, you can just set it to just drive, like literally just drive around. And, you know, I don't know how this is going to look like. Maybe it's an electric car. Maybe there's automated charging stations. I don't know. But the point being, people can use even autonomous vehicles, even electric vehicles in ways that still present problems to us uh, in terms of land use and traffic congestion in particular. So even if we have 100% electric vehicles and clean energy and we eliminate you know, everything except the production part of the pollution problem, uh, there's still going to be, you know, just having fleets of autonomous vehicles flying around our cities isn't going to solve all the problems and it may bring in further problems that we can't predict or that we don't know about yet. Yeah. The best comparison that comes to mind is the backlash effect from uh, energy efficiency. So the idea is that you make lights more energy efficient and hopefully that would reduce the electrical usage for lighting. 
except now it's just so cheap to have lights that you just have them on all the time everywhere. Right. Uh, and that, that could happen with driverless uh, vehicles and that, oh, this is so easy and so cheap. Let's just have like a shit ton of, of cars for everyone. It still seems like, you know, compared to now where so many trips in the United States are done by a single person occupying a two-ton vehicle, uh, it seems to be like, at least from my standpoint, like that, that seems to be the, the peak in terms like how much worse can it get really <laughs> uh, yeah. in terms of uh, inefficiency and how much space it takes and how much energy it takes. Yeah, ab- absolutely. There's, you know, I don't, I don't think I was quite um, vigorous enough in my, my praise for it, which is to say there is a massive potential. I mean, there is such incredible potential for autonomous vehicles in particular. Uh, just think about autonomous buses as just one, one small piece so the biggest cost of any bus system is the labor, like by far, far and away, it's paying your drivers. So if you have autonomous buses, you could potentially increase the number of buses you have, you know, three or four or five fold or whatever. You could increase the timing. You can have them uh, or, you know, uh, have them come more frequently. So and, you know, turning Uber and Lyft into uh, autonomous vehicles that just go around and pick people up, you know, whenever they request it, that has huge potential for saving time, uh, convenience, uh, reducing private ownership of vehicles. So this is, this is a huge, huge, huge area of potential benefit for sure. One, one downside that I identify with is the loss of, or at least, um, the erosion of privacy. So, for example, I have a I have a transit card and I'm extremely mindful of the fact that every time I ride the bus or I ride the train, uh, some government entity has exactly when I got on the bus from where and for how long. And I'm uncomfortable with that. I still submit to it because it's just so much easier to have a transit card than paying by cash every time. But I recognize that that's a problem. Uh, similarly, the same issue exists with uh, driverless vehicles. It may not be a government entity, but you still have a corporation that knows exactly where you are, where you went for how long and when you came back. Uh, That is a problem compared to the standard right now where, or at least, I mean, I won't get into like cell phone tracking, but (laughs) right now there, you have the ability to get in, in your private car, go anywhere you want. No one knows where you are. No one knows where you went, where, how long you went there for, uh, unless they are like extremely um, diligent detectives. And I can appreciate that from the standpoint of autonomy. Master Thief. Yeah. Uh, in, 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 ter- in, terms, in terms of, the, of, of, the, um, of, of self-driving cars and, and privacy, I, again, I think this has to do more with the design of systems and the presumption that, you know, just because the corporation's uh, machines generate this information, that that means the information has to be stored and accessible uh, and made available to advertising. Um, you know, I, I was I was reading uh, more of uh, Crawford's book last last night, and and he really goes into that that it is no coincidence that the major driver uh, of self driving one of the major drivers of self driving cars uh, is Google, which is not a technology company per se. It is an advertising company. It has its own motives uh, for 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 generating uh, and and using and storing and collecting all this information that it, it wants to sell you products and. His his sort of dystopia on this is uh, is the the kind of uh, is a self driving car 
which will try to insert ads for saying it's like, oh, there's there's a McDonald's uh, two miles up the road and you deserve a break today or something. And it, it will it will try to reroute you and you have to keep declining all these <laughs> options to keep heading to your destinations. And, and that would be... <laughs> my, my if, GPS just does that. <laughs> My GPS already does that, doesn't it? <laughs> oh no! I, I'm, not I'm, not I'm just I'm imagining uh, like the toolbars from the nascent age of the internet, where uh, there were like some services that would, you know, back when advertising was so lucrative, they they would pay you for having a toolbar running. <laughs> you get like five dollars an hour in like oh. the late nineties, early aughts God, for if... looking at. At, uh, ads yeah and, you know nowadays shit, like five dollars an hour yeah that this was like a bonanza oh uh, yeah back then <laughs> uh but remember I mean, bo- remember have... bonzi bunny that that that, that little gorilla <laughs> pop-up yeah bonzi bonzi buddy is different it didn't give you cash oh, it was oh. it was much more malicious but there were services <laughs> that literally would pay you money for looking for having this toolbar running in the background <laughs> and there's a similar structure with you know you know spotify and hulu where you can pay a little more to get rid of the ads. And that's something I do because I, I find I hate ads and I can just imagine the, the structure that would come into place where if you're poor, uh, you can get a free ride. So long as you, you make these four stops everywhere along the way, you'll get there eventually, but you have to abide by these, uh, these like, you know, first we have to stop at Taco Bell for at least 10 minutes. And then we have to stop at home Depot. And this, uh, ride brought to you by Citibank, you know, things like that, that turned into this like hellhole of, of, uh, (laughs) augmented reality space. I mean, you're basically just describing a bus. (laughs) 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 Yeah. I don't have anything to say to that. That's on point. <laughs> <laughs> but but yeah, uh, uh, you know, on, on on just on just another uh, idea about the, the 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 sort of changes and not all the good ones that that self driving cars are going to create. Um, a, a lot of the a lot of the the links that I posted and you know uh, Crawford's book goes in, goes into uh, some length on this too uh, is about is about the dangers of over automation. And how it's it's going to lead to a loss of an, an even worse atrophy uh, of driving skill, and that you know if 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 you are going to automate a, a car to the point where it can just like drive an eight year old child to school completely autonomously with no driver interference, uh, it's 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 probably just better to declare that it's it's its own form of transportation and just give it its own lane because that level of automation is just absolutely incompatible. Um, with 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 people actually drive it, driving their own cars, uh, the the dangers of, of self driving cars uh, that that have the option for 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 human involvement. We've already seen that uh, with with airplanes, where there has been uh, a lot of concern given about over automation of the airplanes, and that uh, pilots are relying on the automation rather than their own flying skills. Uh, and getting themselves and their passengers into some very uh, dangerous and, and and tragic situations, um, they they had the, uh, the the crash of Air uh, Air France 447. Uh, the 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 the, uh, the the pitot tubes that were sensing airspeed got iced over. Uh, the pilots did not understand the automation. They didn't understand that the plane had switched to a new flight mode to compensate for that, uh, and they they put them they put themselves in, into a low speed unrecoverable stall crash. Everybody died. Um, 
when and you know you know it's 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 pilot versus machine and there have been all kinds of cases where uh pilots have have inputted the wrong controls or, or didn't fully understand the automation uh and and they've flown into mountains or you've gotten cases like Boeing with the 737 Max, where they made these these massive design changes to the automation without telling the pilots that the automation can take control in certain in certain areas, and that's 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 where you got these tragic cases where the pilots were literally having to fight the automation for control of the airplane. So uh, a, a big point about that is is um, you you need to have you need to fully understand. Who is going to be in charge? Is it going to be the automation, or is it going to be the driver? And and segregate those kinds of, of vehicles appropriately. Introversity. Well, I guess just as a direct response to that previous point uh, about the automation of planes and how that's led to some problems, and you know how that translates into cars, is air uh, airplane travel is actually the safest uh per mile and per you know per passenger mile traveled uh in terms of fatalities and casualties and all that which you know obviously there's kind of a difference in kind of the regulations and the training and the oversight and all that stuff that goes into airlines and airplanes uh that doesn't go to the same extent into cars uh, but it just serves to, to to you know say that automation isn't necessarily you know there's nothing to suggest that automation will necessarily be worse, and there's a lot to suggest that automation will be significantly safer. Which that's actually something I wanted to kind of ask you about was the, this Crawford guy in one or two of the articles that you you shared with us. He basically makes the point that there's no consistent metric of safety uh, and that this, you know, we need to decide on a consistent metric of safety and so that we can figure out and compare automated vehicles or autonomous vehicles with human drivers. And he like, isn't it just casualties or collisions per X vehicle miles traveled? I, I, th- I think, I think just, just as, just as my own closing thought on that uh, is that, um, you know Crawford talks about this, and in my experience, it's, it's also true that uh, driving is ultimately a skill, uh, and it's it's got to be practiced in order to be done well. And that is that is naturally going to entail some risks. But you know, as as with 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 any other social activity, you know, the more drivers are aware and the more they conduct themselves with the realization that there are other forms of transportation, there are other people sharing the road and to practice these skills uh, and to, to be mindful and to be aware um, and, and to, to not submit themselves to this regime of safetyism that, that thinks that, 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 that all drivers are necessarily incompetent until proven otherwise, um, you know, to, to, you know, the, you have you have these people that are trying to make everything idiot proof, and as a result, they end up treating everyone like idiots, and that that just feeds into this self fulfilling cycle where we really do feel ourselves becoming uh, feeling less confident and becoming you know less skilled, and it, it just gets in this vicious cycle. To 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 practice these skills is um, is in, is in many ways uh, to to practice being free 
um, as, as as free citizens. And you know that that was that was um, you know when 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 the yellow vest protests were were, were happening in France, and maybe LSC can speak to this a little bit. Uh, it was it was about it, it was very simple. It was a it was a five kilometer an hour reduction in speed limits, but this so disproportionately affected people who were living outside of the dense urban core of Paris that they that they were that they were rising up in revolts. Uh, and you know the the slogans uh, that that were, that were being said in not just in France but in Germany where they were talking about introducing speed restrictions on the autobahn was freedom to drive for free citizens uh, that you know this that that driving is is it is it is not just a form of transportation it is a a sort of bypassing and in, in independence uh, of of these centralized authorities and a reliance. On really the goodwill and the skill and the awareness of, of other citizens, um, and I, I, you know, it, you can you can you can substitute that with with centralized government authority, but that comes with its own dangers. So I guess I guess I can end in what I have to say there. I feel like you've placed too much faith in the American driver. <laughs> Maybe as a closing thought, I'd I'd say that I live in this well designed utopia of transit and I really recommend it to everybody. <laughs> oh, 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 I'm French. <laughs> I will say I have I have been to Paris and it was amazing. The subways actually functioned and were pleasant and fast and it was nice. Well you you were lucky you weren't there on a strike day, but <laughs> yeah, that, that's 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 what you were saying earlier during the during during the show notes is that uh, it, yeah, it's it's fine because there are two public transportation systems, and if one of them's on strike, the other one will be functioning fine. <laughs> All right, cool. Please uh, drive safe out there while yes. you're listening to this podcast. Yes. Drive safely. Um, <laughs> watch watch for pedestrians. Watch for bicyclists. Try not to drink too much. Yeah. Don't drink. Use your tu- use your turn signals for everyone oh in America, God, yes. please. They're there Holy for a shit, reason. Yes. They're for Christmas, right? <laughs> I uh, I made seventeen thousand dollars from getting hit by a car. Yo, <laughs> you're, a lawyer. On, you're a lawyer. You're a lawyer. Yeah, I got hit by a car on my bicycle, and I happened to have a camera running. It was it was so easy. Oh. Is that is that the key? You just have to have the the dash cam running. Yeah, now yeah. I have like two cameras on my helmet because I'm a fucking dork. One is face facing forward and the other is facing rear, so Okay. Bye. <laughs>